0: Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawassasi, and I am your host for the FACT Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am FACT's vice president of community relations. Before we start today's very interesting conversation, I just want to pause for just a moment to say thank you to DBV Technologies for being a very kind sponsor of Facts Roundtable podcast. Please note that today's guest was not sponsored by DBV or compensated in any way by the sponsor to participate in this specific podcast. Today, we're sitting down with board-certified allergist and pediatrician, Zachary Rubin, to explore how to find evidence-based and medically vetted news headlines and how to find good food allergy and COVID-19-related information. Dr. Rubin appears regularly on local TV and media in the Chicago area and will share tips on how to use the internet to stay in the know while working with your doctor to make the best choices for you and your family. Welcome, Dr. Rubin. We are absolutely honored and delighted to have you on Facts Roundtable podcast. I have been waiting all day for this interview.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: I think we're going to have a fantastic conversation. You are a double board certified doctor. But before we kick off today's conversation, can you explain to listeners what that means and if you can share your background?
1: Absolutely. So what that actually means is, is in order to become an allergist immunologist, you have to be initially board certified in either pediatrics or internal medicine. So when you graduate medical school, you go into a residency program where you get three to four years of training in one of those fields or or both of them, and you have to sit for an exam that is proctored by a specific board. So for me, it was the American Board of Pediatrics to say that I am competent to take care of pediatric patients. Then you go on to fellowship and do two to three years of additional training and then sit for another board exam through the American Board of Allergy and Immunology. So I've passed both of those exams which allows me to practice both pediatrics, allergy and clinical immunology. Allergy is a field that's interesting because it's one of the few in medicine where you can take care of all age groups despite what your initial board certification is. So while I primarily take care of children, I have the ability to take care of adults as well. I actually recently finished my fellowship training at Washington University in St. Louis, June of 2020. And move back to the town that I grew up in and now work in a private practice in DuPage County, Illinois, for the past year during this pandemic. And it's been truly a joy to be able to take care of families who have basically grown up with me. It's been a lot of fun.
0: I personally follow you on Twitter, and you are very vocal about misinformation and disinformation regarding food allergies and especially COVID. I have also watched several of your commentaries shown on local Chicago media. What has sparked your passion for sharing this really good vetted information?
1: So it's actually been a long road in the making. So growing up, my dad's a general pediatrician. And when I was in high school, I was very interested in going to medicine. And we created a mini medical school for high school students and taught high schoolers what it takes to get into medicine and learn about the field through didactics and hands-on activities. So I was always kind of programmed for education in, in my mindset. And that aligns with being a physician because the word doctor in Latin means to teach. And so I've always felt that a good physician is one that's able to teach and impart knowledge to empower patients to be able to lead healthy lifestyles. The past four to five years have been really challenging for us because there has been a takedown in trusted media. A lot has been thrown around in terms of these ideas of fake news and a lot of misinformation that has spread through social media platforms. And as the pandemic hit, when I moved from St. Louis to Illinois, I noticed that there was a lot of misinformation spreading around Twitter, which is what I originally joined. And in particular, there was one individual who I had met through the platform Whose daughter had a recent diagnosis of food allergy and was quite scared and it had heard all of these scary things about what was going on. And I decided to reach out to that individual and have a conversation with them. And that really sparked my interest in trying to educate the public through social media. Also to build connections, because when you are having to be socially distant and the conferences were becoming virtual, it's hard to meet new people. And I thought that working through Twitter initially and now doing a lot on TikTok, I have met a lot of people through those platforms. And it's given me the opportunity to inform the public about areas that are difficult to understand and fraught with misinformation such as food allergy. But the pandemic as well is fraught with a lot of issues regarding misinformed beliefs, and it's been politicized. And so I'm trying to do my part to educate the public so we can get past the pandemic and then work more towards helping the food allergy community.
0: So now you mentioned TikTok. So when you say TikTok, I have visions of dances. Are you dancing on there? Can you go into a little more information on how you're using TikTok? I love that you're using TikTok and you're using these different platforms to reach out to the broader community.
1: Absolutely. So uh, the videos that I typically make are usually ones that combine music, combine other lip syncing techniques, or I will take video clips of blatant misinformation and point out what is incorrect and clarify what is going on. There's also some clips of me hula hooping because this pandemic has gotten so weird that I decided, well, I have to show some weird content too to grab people's attention, to show how ridiculous some of the things that are being spread around. So I try to vary it up to make it fun, but also be serious at the same time, especially for children who are suffering during this pandemic. I will show statistics, use very dramatic music, to try to grab people's attention to see this is what's actually going on. These are the facts. And coming from a physician, this is what my opinion is regarding the health and well-being of children.
0: Can you tell our listeners, what are your social media handles? And I will make sure I'll put them in the show notes so people can follow you.
1: Sure, absolutely. So on Twitter, it's Ruben underscore allergy. Uh, last name spelled R-U-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, then underscore allergy. And it's the same handle for TikTok. Um, I'm also on Instagram, but I don't use it that much. And I'm not really using Facebook. So it's mainly Twitter and TikTok right now. So if people have questions, I do a lot of events uh, on TikTok called Lives, where I'll actually do a session and I'll talk to people, answer their questions in real time, or I will do what's called a dual live where there are other healthcare professionals who have conversations with me about various topics and we can exchange ideas and answer questions. But there aren't many allergists on TikTok actually. I might be one of the only ones on there right now, but happy to try to help answer allergy related questions as well.
0: This is fantastic. Okay, I cannot wait to run over to TikTok and start following you. This is how we get good information to people in ways that they can digest it. You and I both know we can get really confused in this heavy medical language, and it can get very overwhelming, and we walk away not knowing. But you using these kind of platforms with just normal everyday language, that is powerful.
1: Absolutely, and it's fun to do because you get to be creative. You get to to use a different side of your brain to try to take very complicated pieces of information and distill it down into bite-sized chunks for people to understand.
0: This summer, Forbes published an article which sparked a video and a commentary from you. So can you share with listeners what the piece was about and why were you so concerned?
1: Absolutely. So one of my followers had shown me this article from Forbes that made this claim that Over 500 children were cured from food allergy based on a type of new technique that was being done. And so I looked at the article, I read through it, and it had one paper associated with it. And I was quite troubled by the claims that were being made after looking through it and trying to figure out if this is really evidence based or not. Unfortunately, right now, there's not a true cure for food allergy. And there was this alternative technique that was called allergy release technique or art that was using a lot of fancy terms, using daily doses of foods. It almost sounded like it was oral immunotherapy, but with some additional things. And they were making claims that they were curing a lot of kids with food allergy, which it was odd because the article was also talking about how much revenue was being generated from it. It just sounded more like a business piece. Than actually something that was promoting a good treatment that was evidence-based, that was something that was reproducible. So it was using very limited data that's not the type of data that we as food allergists want to look at. So as an example, looking at the article that was published in what's called the Alternative and Integrative Medicine Journal, they didn't identify food allergic patients through something called an oral food challenge meaning that they ate that food in front of researchers to actually determine that they have a food allergy to begin with. It didn't use the same type of data that we like to look at to figure out, are these patients allergic and what are the outcomes from it? Outcomes typically can be measured through double-blind placebo-controlled food challenges, and that was not the primary endpoint of the study. They were just looking at skin tests. So it was not the type of data that we would want to look for, and it hasn't been reproducible. So I was skeptical. And when I see a headline that literally says cured food allergy over 500 kids, that can lead people down a pathway of spending a lot of money with potentially risky side effects that we're not entirely aware of. And this was being promoted on a large platform, which fortunately that article was redacted shortly after my video had had been posted and, and other people had written to Forbes saying that this should be taken down.
0: Now, did you reach out to Forbes directly or they just saw your social media and responded?
1: I also reached out to them as well. So I was able to get in contact with one of the editors to tell them what was going on. They had initially tried to backtrack by changing the headline of the article, but it still didn't quite do the justice that it was, which was if this was truly something that was A potential issue, they didn't have any counter argument to it. They didn't have a food allergist go on and say, hey, this is what we think about it, whether or not it was promising or skeptical. It was a very one sided argument that had very little evidence to support its potential benefits.
0: So now, based on stories like this that you see, and especially since it came from Forbes, what steps can a listener take to learn how to decide which news pieces are real, which ones are not, especially on social media? How do they figure out Well, what is medically vetted? What is based in science? Because that article title sounds pretty interesting.
1: Absolutely. And that's that's something that's misleading. And this is a real challenge today because... There are even credible sources that sometimes are promoting new issues that can be potentially misinformed. This is true very much so for the pandemic, where a lot of the data that comes out is not peer-reviewed. So we do have to be skeptical with what we're hearing. And so some of the recommendations that I offer to folks is this, are you seeing that there's a consensus opinion on this? Are there multiple people from credible sources saying the same thing. So in the food allergy community, I strongly recommend individuals go to websites such as ones from the American College of Allergy Asthma Immunology or the American Academy of Allergy Asthma Immunology or Quad AI. Those are societies that use evidence-based medicine and report the most up-to-date research that's going on And trying to get it in easily digestible forms. We want to use those types of organizations as primary resources or talking with your physician, your healthcare provider, if you have questions to get the the most up to date information, because folks like myself try to read up as much as possible in journals that help us guide our management of patients. So it's good to talk to people that you know as well. And so if you see a headline, You got to make sure, is this something that's being replicated throughout other news organizations? Are you seeing when you go on Twitter or TikTok, are you seeing folks who have credentials, who are verified individuals, they're saying the same thing? And I would also be careful about folks who promise that this is 100% going to cure this or it's going to be the next best thing. That type of rhetoric can be rather confusing and misleading. And so you want to find folks, too, who are going to talk about what is known, what is not known, weighing the risks and the benefits, presenting data. The the flashy headlines don't necessarily mean that's what's true.
0: And to be honest, if there really was a cure, we would be lined up for miles.
1: Absolutely. I would be one of the first people to tell you that I'm very excited about whatever treatment is going out there for the food allergy community. But that takes time for us to be able to figure that out and do that and look into the safety concerns as well.
0: Exactly, that takes a while. Staying on this topic, can you explain what is evidence-based data and then how is that data actually deemed evidence-based? We often see information shared on the internet from people with the title of doctor, which that makes things a little confusing because I know a PhD can be referred to as a doctor. So can you also help us understand who can use that title of doctor and even how can someone vet that they really are a doctor?
1: Absolutely. So, it's not that hard for folks to actually find the person's name in the social media handle and look them up and see, do they have a PhD, which is a, which is a doctor, but one that does a lot of research, or are they MDs or DOs? Those are medical physicians as examples, but there are alternative health providers such as chiropractors or naturopathic doctors who also use that term as well, but they're not based in... The traditional scientific method. So when we talk about evidence-based medicine, that is an umbrella term to look at what is the research in the literature that is out there to critically evaluate a clinical question. So if I'm trying to figure out what are the potential risks and benefits of doing something like oral immunotherapy, I will then go into the literature and see what type of research, what type of studies have been done. And I try to understand, hey, Is this a randomized controlled trial, which is one of the highest levels of evidence towards something? Or is this a case study where it's looking at one or two people to look at outcomes? Um, there There is a whole methodology of figuring out, is this study valid? And is it generalizable to the population that you're trying to help? And unfortunately, with this pandemic, a lot of research right now is not immediately peer reviewed which is what the normal scientific process is, where multiple experts in the field will look at that paper, look at that journal article and say, hey, is this this scientifically sound? Is this valid? Will this contribute to the general body of knowledge? And multiple people looking at that to come to a consensus to say, we accept this into our journal. A lot of this is getting churned out quickly because we are in such dire straits with what's going on in the pandemic. So that's where a lot of confusion lies with the pandemic. We're not seeing that as much with other healthcare issues in terms of like food allergy, for example, but it takes time for that data to accumulate, to figure out questions such as does something during pregnancy increase the risk of developing food allergy? As an example, that takes a long time to figure out those questions, to do those studies carefully. And so we have to look into that literature very carefully and then communicate that to the general public in a way that's easily understandable and not misconstrued.
0: Thank you for bringing that clarity. That is just fantastic. So now you did mention Quad AI and the college a little earlier regarding finding some good vetted food allergy information. Do you have any tips in general for resources Again, maybe if there are a few more for food allergy, but then also for COVID. So, how can our listeners really zero in on some good COVID information?
1: Absolutely. So, from the food allergy side, there's various organizations such as yourself, Fact, that have a lot of good resources on your website that I actually use for my patients on a regular basis. So, there are, are organizations, uh, charitable foundations, that try to help the public as well. There are a lot of groups out there online, like on Facebook of parents who come together to talk about food allergies. Those are communities that can be helpful, but I would caution people and say, you want to find the one that fits you best because especially in the food allergy community, there are different uh, perceptions of risk and benefit of doing different things on a daily basis. And so you want to find a community that aligns with your lifestyle as much as possible, to make friends, to ask questions, because some groups may not fit your personality as well. So I just want you to look, there's a lot of different groups out there that you could join to help with that. When it comes to the pandemic, I still believe that the CDC, FDA, and the WHO are primary places to go to, to get information, to start from there. And then from that point, when you go to places like Twitter and TikTok, where you have physicians trying to explain things, you want to find folks who, one, are generally verified because their content is considered to be genuine. Even outside of that, there are those who are not verified, but they are associated with universities, as an example, who do academically rigorous work. So if we're talking about it from a standpoint of COVID-19... There are a lot of like virologists out there who are on Twitter, people who are literally working the front lines, giving good information. And so there are a lot of folks who give every little bit of their time to try to help clarify things. But again, we always have to caution about what type of content they're presenting because there can be misinformation there. I always start with the places that are government agencies, because they are the ones who are literally doing a lot of the research and giving the guidelines out. I start with that and go all the way down from there.
0: Thank you. And and for listeners, I'm going to make sure in the show notes, I have all these organizations linked for you. So it'll be very easy for you to find. Well, our time is almost up here. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like listeners to hear from you?
1: Absolutely. So I think it's really important during these times that we reflect on the positive things that are going on in our lives. Because when you go on media outlets, when you go on social media, there is a lot of negative content right now. And a lot of things may seem scary. But at the end of the day, if we are working towards the better goal, which is to get past this pandemic, to live a safe, healthy, happy lifestyle, we have to work through this together and try to bring down the, the barriers that are going on right now. So uh, there are good communities out there on social media. You can find and make a lot of connections. Don't be afraid to ask healthcare providers questions. They're more than happy to answer those for you when they can so that you can have some clarity in your life.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ruben. I appreciate so much your time and you taking this time specifically to really educate us on this area because it's pretty confusing. I hope everyone runs to TikTok and Twitter and follows you. I thoroughly enjoy it. I love the positivity you bring. And I just really love your passion to just help in the community, get some good information so we can move forward. I mean, we need this kind of positivity. So I want to thank you so much for your time.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. Before we say goodbye today, I just want to thank DBV Technologies one more time for being a very kind sponsor of FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Please note that today's guest was not sponsored by DBV Technologies or compensated in any way by the sponsor to participate in this specific podcast. Thank you for listening to FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.